Well, after last week, uh, when Pastor Glenn gave us a, a general overview and introduction to the wisdom literature, this week we are moving in earnest to begin working our way through the books that make up uh, that wisdom literature. Rather than working chapter by chapter as we do each year through a single book, um, we've instead decided to cover an entire genre of, of biblical literature. And the reason for that is that these books are part of a set and they're best read and understood together. So if you only read one book of a set, you only get part of the story. Everybody knows that. And now, of course, this applies to all sorts of, of biblical books. There's a, there's a history set up there and there's a set of books that are books of the law and the, the prophets. And if you only read one of them, you'll only get a snapshot in time. Um, if you read Ezra, for example, you get a snapshot from that time when some of the exiles were returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. And you'll get a complete history of that time, but you won't find anything in there about the conquest of Canaan or about the time of the judges or about the period of the kings. You have to read the complete set to get that. And this applies even more so, I think, with these wisdom books because they are so practical and they're not set in any period of historical time. So we're going to handle them as a set, beginning today with what I think is the centrepiece of that set, the book of Proverbs. Now, if I asked probably any one of you this morning to name one of the wisdom books. Proverbs is probably the first one that the majority of you would come up with. It's what most Christians traditionally think of as wisdom literature. It is a book that we all know is full of these little short snappy sayings that we call Proverbs. Now most of them were attributed to King David's son Solomon, the king who famously asked God for wisdom to help him reign and rule well over God's people. However, the book itself also names other authors. There's Agur and Lemuel in chapters 30 and 31, respectively. Um, they author specific sections. And then at specific points, uh, 22.17 and 24.23, Groups of proverbs are specifically labelled as the sayings of the wise. So while Solomon may well have been the author of many of these proverbs, it is also likely that he was a collector of the sayings of the wise. And that is what we have here, a collection of sayings, some of them his and probably some of them from other places, and they're all gathered together for us in this book of practical wisdom. And these proverbs, they cover the full gamut of human experience and they deal with topics as diverse as, as relationships, as speech, work, pride, humility, wealth, listening to advice, raising children, accepting correction, food, uh, respect for the elders, learning, living peacefully and so on and so on. Just about anything you can think of, you will probably find advice on it in the Proverbs somewhere. 
they're easy to read and they're designed to be easy to memorize rather than being a comprehensive theological explanation on any one topic. They're designed to stick in your head. There's nothing complex about most of them. They're universally applicable over time. And we can relate to them mostly because they're just about the ordinary everyday things that all of us deal with. But it's important that we get that complete picture, especially I think when it comes to this type of literature because of the very practical nature of the Proverbs. And together, these five books, they paint a picture for us of what it means to live wisely under God. They contain truths that are directly applicable to how we live our day-to-day -day lives, but you must have that whole truth to be sure that you're drawing a correct conclusion. How many of you recognise this character? Children of the, the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s would all be familiar with this character. Some of my kids are going, who is it? I don't know who it is. <laughs> it's Mr Squiggle, the man from the moon, who every afternoon around four o'clock disembarked from his cardboard tube that was a rocket ship um, to come and make sense of the squiggles that young children had sent into him. Young children would send in a drawing. Usually it was a bit of a scribble and a dot or a circle here or there, and it didn't look like much at all, really. But Mr Squiggle always knew what it was. He could always see the complete picture. And he'd look at the image and he'd turn to his co-host and he'd say, ah, yes, Miss Jane, I know exactly what this one is, Miss Jane. This is a very easy one. And then he would proceed with his little pencil nose to fill in all the, the spaces between the lines and the dots and the squiggles. And eventually, Miss Jane could also see what the picture was. He'd turn to her and he'd say, look, Miss Jane, it's a happy little duck that Max has sent in for us today. And all would be made clear. Part of the picture gives only part of the truth and so we need to be careful when we're handling the wisdom literature that we allow ourselves to see the whole picture and not be left like Miss Jane looking at something that seems to make no sense at all. So let me give you a few examples from the Proverbs to explain what I mean here. He who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself from calamity. Now that's great advice. If you're careful with your words, you're not likely to hurt anybody with them. You're not likely to make promises that you can't keep and you're not likely to say anything that you might later regret. There's no particular theology here being expounded. This is not law and it's not tied to any particular historical setting or people or culture. This is a general principle that applies to everybody. Be careful with your speech and you're likely to keep yourself out of trouble. Let's have a look at another one. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. 
Now again, we can all nod our heads and say amen to that. An ancient city that had broken down walls lacked protection. And so does the man who lacks the protection of self-control. He sets himself up for trouble. So you don't need to be a Bible scholar to get value from the Proverbs. They're designed to be easy to memorise and easy to understand. Another one, Proverbs 26.20, without wood a fire goes out, without gossip a quarrel dies down. More good practical advice. Let an argument go and eventually it'll simmer down, but if you stoke it up with gossip, it's going to flare up hot again. Proverbs 27.2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lips. I don't think anyone could deny that any of these proverbs are just good, practical advice for wise living. Now, within this book of proverbs, there are somewhere around 900 individual proverbs, and that kind of presented me with a bit of a problem this morning. 900 proverbs on an immense number of topics. Where do you start when you've only got one message to give an overview of the whole lot? And I pondered on this for quite a while, and then a proverb came to my mind. And it's not one that you find in the Bible. It's a Chinese proverb, apparently, when I looked up its origins. Who knew that I knew Chinese proverbs? But I do. Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish and he'll eat forever. And so this morning, I'm not going to take you fishing in one or two or three proverbs picked out at random. What I want to do is to make sure that we're all equipped with the right gear for fishing so that we can read and understand and apply the Proverbs well ourselves. So let me give you a few more examples because sometimes within the Proverbs, Christians can stumble and stumble badly. And that's why we need to be equipped with the right equipment for reading these Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Now that's a very hard proverb for anybody who's ever lost a godly family member, a godly husband or wife, or a young child who's died very early in life. And there are plenty in this room for whom that has been your lived experience. And I think we all know that there are many, many examples like this where life does not work out as we had hoped or planned. Good people sometimes die very young. Think about singer and songwriter Keith Green. A man who lived for Christ in every aspect of his life and whose songs, including, O oh Lord, you're beautiful, there is a redeemer, and create in me a clean heart, they continue to bring joy to people in worship today. And these songs and his legacy continue to win converts to Christ even today. 
Yet his years on earth were short, only 28 years. What about this one? No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. Or another proverb like it, misfortune pursues the sinner, but prosperity is the reward of the righteous. Well, every day there are 13 Christians killed for their faith in the world. And I think they might beg to differ with this proverb. Sometimes the wicked do seem to prosper and the righteous have no end of trouble. And this has been the case for as long as there has been Christianity. The persecution of Christians is as old as Christianity itself. From these early days when early church believers were burnt on stakes or dragged into stadiums to be uh, mauled by lions for the entertainment of the crowd, to today's unjust arrests, abductions, forced marriages, torture, murder, economic discrimination, and destructions of homes and places of worship, that is the lived reality for some 300 million Christians who live in countries that are very different to our own. Sometimes the righteous suffer and they suffer badly. So what does that proverb mean? What about this one? All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Well, having spent many decades or several decades working with primary producers, I've seen that sometimes too, this is not the case. Sometimes hard work doesn't bring any profit at all. Sometimes for reasons completely outside of your control, hard work brings a lifetime of debt and suffering and stress. So what are we to make of this? One final example, a very well-known proverb. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Another proverb that is not easy for the many, many Christian parents whose lived experience suggests otherwise. Parents whose children have not only departed from the Lord, but sometimes from their own family and from the law, and sometimes even from this world as a direct result of their own poor choices. So what can we make of these proverbs? There are many who would like to point to them and say, see, the Bible is full of lies. I've worked night and day to build my business and two years of COVID has left me with a lifetime of debt that I'll never pay off. Other Christians, they might look at the mess that their adult children's lives has gotten into. And they might believe that maybe they did something wrong. Maybe they weren't as good at parenting as they thought they were. And this has caused their children to, to end up in this mess that they're in. Or grieving the loss of a spouse or a child early in life, they conclude that maybe God is punishing them. Because if no harm befalls the righteous and misfortune pursues the sinner, then they must have done something terribly, terribly wrong. And this is why it's important to understand the type of biblical literature that we are reading. 
And why it's important to keep in mind that Proverbs is only one volume of a multi-volume set that together make up the wisdom literature. Proverbs details how to live well within God's creative and moral order. Its teaching is general, based on lived experience. Proverbs 14, 23, all hard work brings profit. Well, based on lived, that's based on lived experience. And I think most of us could say that, yes, it's generally true. People who work hard generally return a profit. And the person who stays in bed or refuses to do anything doesn't. Generally, that's true, but not always. And this brings us to lesson one. These are proverbs. They are not promises. Job and Ecclesiastes help fill out the detail in this picture that we get from proverbs by dealing in specifics. Lesson two, the proverbs should be understood as one part of a multi-volume set. It's an important and, all, and a central book in that set, but we need to see the bigger perspective when we're reading it. Job, a righteous man, is beset by just about every kind of suffering and tragedy that one could imagine. He wrestles and he questions and he prays like many of us do when we feel that life is not going as it should. The teacher in Ecclesiastes sees that some things work out as Proverbs say that they should, but sometimes they don't under the sun. So from his earthly perspective, under the sun, sometimes things just don't work out as they're supposed to. Life is complex and the teacher in Ecclesiastes despairs. Together these books deal with wisdom in its fullest context. The way things should be according to God's established order and the way that we often experience them in this world. And we have to keep that in mind as we delve into this literature. Now, whether you've actually read the biblical book of Proverbs or not, all of you, I know, will be familiar with Proverbs because just about every culture has them. The wise sayings that are gleaned from lived or personal experience that are handed down from one generation to the next. Let me give you a little test and see how many of these you know. People who live in glass houses shouldn't. Throw stones, good. Don't put all your eggs in one. Yeah. All that glitters is not. Fortune favours the brave. Don't cry over spilt milk. Two wrongs don't make a right. If you snooze, you lose. Beggars can't be choosers. Too many cooks, they spoil the broth. Don't judge a book by its 10 out of 10. You all know your proverbs. We know them because we've heard them, don't we? And that's how proverbs are supposed to be used. Someone has made an observation about life 
based on their experience, they've condensed it into a short little saying, and they've used that saying, and others have heard it and recognised the truth in it, and they continue to use it and tell their children that proverb, and it gets passed down from one generation to the next. And the same, exactly the same, is true of the proverbs in the Bible. They are human observations about how to live wisely, handed down from those who've gone before us. And this is what sets the language of this wisdom literature apart from everything else that you might find in the Old Testament. You won't find in there direct words from God like you will find in the law where he says, thou shalt not. There are no direct commandments like that. Nor will you find any direct words of God spoken through a single chosen mouthpiece like you'll find in the prophets who say, thus say the Lord. Instead, the voices that predominate in Proverbs are the voices of a fatherly king to his son and the voice of Lady Wisdom herself. And these voices, they're most evident in the introductory chapters, chapters 1 to 9, which happen before we get chapter after chapter of these short little Proverbs. The father instructs his son in the benefits of wisdom, urging him to join himself with Lady Wisdom, to say to her, Proverbs 7, 4, you are my sister. As for Lady Wisdom, she calls out from the public places. She calls from the streets, the public squares, the noisy thoroughfares, the city gates, the heights, the crossroads, the entrances to the city, all the places that in ancient times would have been the places where trade was carried out, where legal decisions were made, where people gathered to debate and to socialise. They are the places where life happened in communities. And it's from these places that Lady Wisdom calls and she beckons anyone who will listen to seek her and to follow her lead in every aspect of life. And that is lesson three. The wisdom of God is supposed to be expressed in every aspect of a believer's life. It is not about being academically smart. It's more about being fit for purpose, fit for life. And from four passages concerning Lady Wisdom that are interdispersed between the words of the fatherly king to his son, in those first nine chapters, we build up a picture of what Lady Wisdom is like. See if you can recognise her. She existed before the world began. She was involved in creating and bringing order to the universe. She invites humanity to join her. Many have rejected her. She speaks what is right and true. She detests wickedness. She walks in righteousness and justice. She offers a full and prosperous life for all who follow her. And those who find her find life. Does she sound familiar to you? She sounds a lot like our God. But she's not God. But she's perhaps best thought of as a 
personification of one attribute of God. And understanding this identity of Lady Wisdom, this Lady Wisdom character is complex, but it's crucial to how you interpret the Proverbs. And I think uh, this guy, Gregory Mobley, who's a, a professor of Hebrew Bible, I think he gives the most concise summary when he says the character, Lady Wisdom, is best understood as a metaphor for certain aspects of God that are not conveyed in some of the more prevalent Old Testament images of God as father or king. God is finally none and all of these. Each metaphor opens a different door into the divine place, palace, the houses of the holy. So the voice of Lady Wisdom, mingled as it is throughout these speeches of the father to the son, is critical because it elevates the teaching from merely human accumulated experience and observation to divine instruction. Which brings us to lesson four in the Proverbs, God uses human wisdom to reveal his own wisdom. All of us have plenty of accumulated human wisdom and there are many proverbs born out of it. Too many cooks spoil the broth or many hands make light work. Both of these are correct but they're contradictory. These are um, not proverbs you'll find in the Bible. You won't find contradictory proverbs in the Bible because they're not born out of only human wisdom. The presence of this Lady Wisdom figure right through the introductory chapters tells us that what we find in Proverbs is divine instruction to us. And rather than speaking directly as God did in the books of the law or through an individual messenger as he did in the prophets, he's using collective human wisdom to speak. I want to finish up this morning by thinking a little bit more about wisdom itself. Because I think it's obvious that if you're seeking after something, you have to know what you're seeking after. And it is Lady Wisdom herself who tells us. Proverbs 8 tells us that wisdom was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. Wisdom is what God used to create the world and to bring order where there was none. She says, then, so back when the heavens were being set in place and the clouds were being put in the sky and the sea was being given its boundaries and the foundation of the earth was being marked out, back then, wisdom was the craftsman at his side, bringing forth order where there was none. Now, we can think of this order in a number of ways. There's the natural order of things. Darkness gives way to light. One season gives way to another season. The planets orbit around the sun. A seed germinates, grows to a seedling, the seedling into a tree. The tree produces fruit. The fruit contains seed and it falls to the ground and produces another seedling. You can think of the water cycle or the nitrogen cycle. The list seems endless. God created an orderly world and wisdom was part of that creative and orderly process. That's one way to think about 
order, God's order, but it's not the only way. There's moral order created by God, bringing order where there was none. Some things are right and some things are wrong. That's God's moral order. There is the social order that comes from a society that is functioning within the bounds of justice and compassion that was established by God. There's the order that comes through the regular rhythms of work and rest that God established for us. And I'm sure there's other types of order that we could think about too. To live within that order is to live wisely and that's lesson five. It is what God intended as the best way for us to live in harmony with his created world and with one another. And the book of Proverbs is full of good, simple, practical advice to help us do just that. But if we're going to live this way, then we first must answer Lady Wisdom's call to us. We must seek her out. We must follow her lead into all of those places of everyday life. But since this character, Lady Wisdom, represents just one aspect of God personified, our attempts to seek her out and to follow her lead must begin with a correct attitude towards God, a humble, reverent attitude that is summed up in the theme of the book of Proverbs that we spoke about last week and it is carried through all the other biblical wisdom literature. It was lesson one last week. It is lesson six this week. But without it, lessons one to five are a bit redundant. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is our starting point. It comes up multiple times in the book of Proverbs. You will find it in the Psalms. We will encounter it again in Job. And it is expressed in the conclusion of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. It is the unifying theme of all of this biblical wisdom literature. So if we start with lesson six, we must begin our search for wisdom with this correct attitude to God. That is our key piece of equipment. Without that, we're not going to progress very far at all. Then if, we're un if we understand that what we're reading are proverbs, not promises, then we understand that we must read them as part of this multi-volume set of biblical wisdom literature so that we're sure we're getting the full picture. If we read with the expectation that the wisdom of God should permeate and be expressed in every aspect of our lives, if we understand that although these are human voices speaking from human experience, God is using them to reveal his own wisdom. And if we appreciate that wise living is about living well within God's established order, and we look to the Proverbs to help us do just that, then I think we're all equipped and we're ready to go fishing in the Proverbs for these nuggets of wisdom. We have all of the essentials that we need to be able to read the Proverbs well. So 
May you fish well. May you eat till you are full and always be satisfied by all of the wisdom that is there for the taking in this book of Proverbs. Wisdom calls aloud and we do well to listen and respond to her. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, you were well pleased when after you offered him anything he wanted, Solomon chose wisdom, that he might govern the people well and be able to distinguish between right and wrong. Lord, we may not be governing people, but this book of Proverbs shows us that you want your wisdom to permeate and be expressed in all of our day-to-day -day activities. We need your wisdom at work. Lord, we need your wisdom in our relationships. Lord, we need your wisdom to manage our time and our finances. We need your wisdom in raising our children. We need your wisdom in choosing a life partner or deciding on a career pathway. In all of life's decisions, we need your wisdom. Wisdom says in Proverbs 8.17 that those who seek me find me. Lord, we thank you for that promise and commit ourselves to seek out your wisdom in every aspect of our lives. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we're going to conclude with a song, The Perfect Wisdom of Our God.